Let us pray. Come, Holy Spirit, and fill the hearts of your faithful. Kindle within us the fire of your love, and may my words and our hearts together glorify you, O God, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Well, several years ago, uh, I joined Ancestry.com. I don't have a clue as to how it works. I can't figure out much of anything about it. I get these hints every now and then, and I go look at them. Here's the problem. Uh, you know, on, on, on all of this, they're relying on some pretty old documents, right? When you take into account my grandfather and my grandfather's father and mother and on back and on back and on back, sometimes the documents get a little confused, right? So, like, I don't know if my grandfather's name is Joe Louis Rogers or Joe Louis Rogers because they're both there, right? Now, when you get on into the more present things, I, I kind of can correct those because I actually know the people, but I, I didn't know my grandfather even had a middle name for the longest time, so much less what it was. And it doesn't help that um, he lied about his age to get into the Navy in World War I. So we're not really sure if he was really actually 100 when he died. He might have been 99 or younger. And that's how it is with all genealogy is that they're kind of a little confusing. And needless to say, these ancient genealogies that we have heard, the last the genealogy of Jesus from the Gospel of Matthew is lengthy, and, and it is a bit confusing. And it's even more confusing when you pair it with the genealogy from Luke. They don't match. And so... What are we supposed to believe? Well, uh, I want to go back and pick up a few things from last week to get us all back on the same page. Last week, we heard the first third of Matthew's genealogy of Jesus, and today we heard the last third, but there's a middle third in there. So there are three parts of the genealogy divided into 14 years according to the Gospel of Matthew. And, and so today's, uh, through Matthew, concludes the, his genealogy with verse 17, which says, So all the generations from Abraham to David are 14 generations, and from David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations, and from the, the deportation to Babylon to the Messiah, 14 generations, except... That would mean that there are 42 generations, but a quick count reveals that there might be 40 or 41, kind of depending on how you count. So we also learned that even though the Jewish tradition generally counted their generations through the matriarchs, that doesn't happen here. Matthew counts through the patriarchs. Well, except for the five women the five women that show up. Tamar, the daughter-in-law of Judah, who seduced him after her husband died so that she could have children. And Rahab, the prostitute, who saved Joshua's spies and lied to the authorities to get them out safe. Ruth, a Gentile. Well, 
most biblical scholars consider all four of the women I'm mentioning now likely Gentiles, but Ruth is the most notable, who is a Moabite, who tricked Boaz into marrying her. And then there's Bathsheba, the wife of Uriah, who then became the wife of David, the mother of Solomon. And today we learn of the fifth woman, Mary, who bore Jesus, who is called the Messiah. There's a lot of good lessons to learn from all of this, right? Well, um, one is that we need to pay attention to the fact that the genealogy is told through Joseph, who was not really considered a biological father of Jesus. Doesn't that make your hair curl up a little bit? Okay, and then we learn that no lineage is perfect. I mean, kind of like my grandfather. We getting different names and different spellings and all kind of things happening. And then, of course, the good news, which we talked about last week, is that, you know, Jesus' lineage is not made up of perfect people. Fascinating that we somehow in our American Christian culture decided that we somehow need to be perfect. But this lineage tells us that the people that are named are both good, the good and bad of humanity. And they contain both, and as do we. And that's the good news for us, right? Now, in addition to all this, we learned that the birth. Uh, narratives of Matthew and Luke uh, that John Dominic Crossan and Marcus Borg has told us that they, they consider them as, as scholarly interpreters of scripture they consider these genealogies um, parables you know like the stories you tell about your family and who married who and when they married and what kids they had and so parables and overtures. And I know all y'all know about the overtures and the musicals. And how when you play an overture in a musical, it gives you a little hint of all the songs that are going to come into the musical, right? So, so that's what uh, Borg and Crossan are teaching us in the first Christmas that we're reading right now and talking about. And it goes on, and it is amazing, all the things. And I'm not going to try to talk all about it today because we'd be here till dinner time. So uh, I, I do want to lift up a couple of things. First, let's consider that the first listeners and readers of Matthew's genealogy carried within them, in their very lives, and in their memories, a religious history and a national history. Just like we know our national history, and we know our faith stories, they carried that within them. So they understood things that we will never understand. They, they understood the rabbinical teaching of the Torah. And uh, when it was first transmitted orally and then in writing, it was transmitted to generation to generation to generation, much like we do our own Christian narratives, right? And they knew all of this. For these first Jewish Christians, uh, the very human and very imperfect genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of the carpenter Joseph, was the real-life personification of the mysterious ladder of Jacob's ladder. 
did you go to Sunday school? Did you learn about that? And did you have the felt board where you put the ladder up and then you put all the angels on it and showed them coming up and down? Well, a lot of scholars believe that this was, that this genealogy was the human populated ladder of Jacob. That when it says, uh, and names all of these people, that became the father of, that became the father of, that, you know, so and so on for 40, 41 times. Such names were very personal. They were nostalgic, religious, moral, and even national lessons. And, um, and I find that uh, just wonderful that, that this divine Jacob's ladder is found in in some way in the hearts of the Jewish first century Jewish Christians as it comes as as the as heaven coming down right Jacob's ladder was heaven coming down and that's what Jesus is right heaven coming down as the first century Christians understood it well moreover for these earliest followers of Jesus many of whom were obviously parents themselves this repetition is sort of a a musical note, right? A, a repetition that keeps coming in this story that Abraham was the father of Isaac and Isaac the father of Jacob and Jacob the father of Judah and it goes on and on. And, and like I said, very personal. So what does this teach us? I mean, it's interesting, right? Don't you think? Everything I've said up to this point is interesting. I find it fascinating. But you know, I'm a church nerd, so it's just kind of what I like, but, but there are things to learn here, I think, for all of us. First, our own genealogies teach us that we belong to a particular family, of a particular place, in a particular time. And some people can even go back into way further back than I've ever gotten, into the old world. Some people are not as lucky. Those that were brought here, not because they, choose, they chose to come, but were brought here enslaved, they don't necessarily have the records that tell them their place and time, but they have the family and the stories. Our faith includes not only the select few of ancient covenants, but it also, as we look at the genealogies and then we look at our faith story that are attached to it, um, has the whole story of the world and human people. And, and these make up, for the Christian church, the body of Christ, the church. But there's something more that has to do with the conclusion of the genealogy of Jesus, that Joseph, who is called, that Joseph was the husband of Mary who bore Jesus, who is called the Messiah. And Diana Butler Bass does a superb I cannot lift it up for you high enough. Assessment of what this genealogy ultimately means for us after that closing line. Um, and she unpacks for us this phrase, in the fullness of time. Now, that one sentence in Matthew about the birth of the Messiah that we just heard read sets in motion both an ending and a beginning. And even so in Luke, but 
Matthew ends a genealogy. All of these have been predecessors, and now that ends. And now it means that the Messiah has come, and that is a beginning, right? In our own communion liturgy of Advent, we include the words from the Apostle Paul's letter to the church at Galatia. We thank you especially that in the fullness of time, Jesus was born of Mary. And that fullness of time language means that things have been completed and now things begin, right? The fullness of time involves completion and beginnings. Something ends so that something else can begin. And many Christians, us included, and particularly our evangelical siblings, uh, understand time as a line, right? That we start at point A, that leads to point B, that leads to point C, that leads to point D. And in fact, that's kind of how our history classes are taught, right? We're taught that time starts here, and then this happens, and then this happens, and it's very linear. And the idea for the Christian church is that eventually we will get to the X, Y, and Z, the omega from the alpha to the omega, when all time will end. There'll be a beginning, a middle, and an end, and all time will end. And many of us have studied the Bible and know the chronology, right? Uh, and we can kind of buy into this linear timeline, right? But if you think about it, that's not the practice of the church. That's not how the church counts time. Every year, we circle back around to Advent and Christmas, and then we circle back around to Epiphany, and then we circle back around to Lent and Easter and Pentecost and ordinary time, and the holy days are marked for us like on a calendar, but this is a circular movement. It, we are coming back around, and it's never quite the same, so it's more of a spiral than a circle. I mean, every year we revisit some of this, but things have changed in our world, and so we approach it from a different lens, right? We practice the faith through our liturgies, and, and certainly years move forward in time, human time, uh, soon we will enter the year 2023, a little bit further away from 2020, thank the Lord. Uh, but, uh, but each year, the church, we reenact stories and memories and rituals and, and decades over generations. Our parents and our parents' parents and their parents' parents have reenacted all of this in more of a spiral than a linear pattern. And what we learn from, learn from this, as Bass explains, is that time is less like an advent calendar, anticipating a countdown. You know, we count down to a date. And there's a reason for that, you know, because Christmas is coming. And children get that. But advent, I mean, but really time, as the church practices it, and as God has laid it out, is more like an advent wreath that is relit each year in anticipation of what is and what is not yet. Think about that. What is and what is not yet. And so, again, I ask, what does that mean for us today? 
I mean, how do we know when the fullness of time has come? Well, Mary Ludy, who is one of my favorite devotional writers, a seminary educator and, and uh, just a brilliant writer, says uh, that, you know, we go through our days with the visa in one hand and our faith, the golden rule in the other. And, you know, and what she says is that this visa and this golden rule mo mostly shape an adequate life. Pretty adequate, you know. And if our lives are not disrupted in some disastrous way, we don't really feel the need to be redeemed. We already count ourselves redeemed, right? And we, well, we should. We sing, come Christ Jesus, come, right? But then on the side, we perhaps whisper to ourselves, but not quite yet, you know? Ludi explains that as someone once quipped, if you're having a decent year in your own kingdom, it's hard to long sincerely for the coming of God's kingdom. <laughs> because God's kingdom is about justice. God's kingdom is about equanimity. And sometimes that's hard for us. If Advent feels frustrating to you, or boring, or beside the point, why are we doing this yet again? Maybe it's because we haven't gotten real enough to need what it promises. Or to perceive what it promises. Or to care about it. The grace of the Gospel of Matthew that we heard read today points toward the end of generations so that there might be a new beginning. The reign of God ushered in in the birth of Jesus. The previous generations were full of violence and wars, but this birth, the birth of the Messiah would usher in a time of equality and peace. The crooked ways would be made straight with its suffering and death gone. The arrival of the Messiah, the anointed one, uh, the course of the previous age would be overturned and peace would hold sway over the whole of creation. The long-promised realm of God would arrive. This is what the promise of that last line of Matthew's genealogy is all about. The anticipation of the reign of God. Now, Jesus, as you know, taught that we cannot know the day or the time of God's coming, or as, disciples, or as the disciples asked, the end of the world is at hand. What Jesus taught and lived was that the realm of God is near. It is here, and it is always coming near. And to understand this is to discern and to awaken. While the truth is we live with clocks and calendars and a linear time warp, in this world, grief frequently accompanies endings. Grief frequently accompanies beginnings. Because in order to have a beginning, you have to give up the ending. And so, we may, in fact, long for, for the beginning to come, but it also produces anxiety as we step into the unknown. And, and so, we are back to that Paschal mystery, right? The Paschal mystery is here because God has drawn near. The time is at hand now. And then, 
There is birth, there is life, there is death, and there is new life. And peace awaits us and is with us in this sacred time, the sort of time with and in God that we have to choose. The mystery of God's time is about the almost but not yet. The time is near and it is far off. The time is coming and it is here. Now wrap your mind around that a minute. During the season, this season of endings and beginnings, of darkness and light, are two questions that need to be answered to move along the path towards God's peace and God's reign. The first question is, what time is it? The second question is, where are you? We could spend the rest of our lives just considering these two questions and what our answers will be. But the only correct answer to the first is now. What time is it? Now. Where am I? Here. This is the only way to usher in the peace-filled presence of God. Hold those. For to do so is to know that in the fullness of time, a new creation is being born. To know that there can be peace on earth and goodwill to all because Emmanuel has come. God is with us now and here. Thanks be to God. Amen. Amen. Amen.